Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Traditional wisdom says that the recorded music industry is dominated by the major labels. There used to be a bunch of them, but over the last 25 years, their number has been whittled down to just three companies. There's Universal, the biggest, Sony, and Warner Music. Here's something you may not know. At last estimate, about 110,000 songs are uploaded to the streaming music services every day. Of that number, only about 4% are from those three major labels. The rest is from indie labels and do-it-yourself musicians. So let's flip that around. 96% of all new music comes from independent musicians. The market share for indie labels has been rising by double digits for almost 25 years now. Indie music, or at least material from artists not directly signed to one of the three majors, was an important aspect to the music of the 2010s. Major label acts were still important, but without the indies, it would have been a pretty empty decade. But thanks to the sheer volume of new music and some crafty distribution by indie-friendly companies, we got to hear a lot of it. The width and breadth of indie music over those 10 years was staggering. And without the influence of independent musicians and the styles and trends that they brought along with them, major label mainstream rock would have been much different. So let's examine that. This is part two of the history of rock in the 2010s. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Milky Chance was the song first released in Germany in 2012, and by 2014, it had become an international hit. In fact, they were one of the biggest indie success stories of the decade. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of an examination of the rock in the 2010s. Enough times passed, I think, I hope, that we have some perspective on what happened over that decade. Indie music was a major part of our soundtrack for the 2010s, and there were some interesting trends and commonalities. First and foremost, the overall sound of rock was softer and more poppy than what we saw during the aughts. Oh, sure, plenty of bands went for it with big guitars and screaming vocals. But from a 30,000-foot view, the general assessment was things were, how should I say this, uh, less ear-splitting when it came to the new acts and sounds of the decade. This was a direct result of the sounds percolating through all the different levels of indie rock. Now, I think we have to rewind to the end of the financial crisis of 2008, because that's when we see the reappearance of a trend that goes back decades. Now, traditionally in music, when the economy bounces back from something awful and the gloom lifts, music tends to get happier and poppier, at least in the short term. So let's go back to the oil crisis of the 1970s. Once things settled down into a new normal, what do we get? Well, we got New Wave, which was almost the flip side of punk. More striking, though, was disco, which was pure good-time music. All that crashed in a terrible recession that began in 1980. But once the gloom of that began to lift around 1983-84, what do we get? A period where pop music dominated. The next recession came in 1990, which, as we all know, begat grunge and the intense alt-rock that we saw early in that decade. But then by 1996, economies were doing well, and all people wanted was happy pop music. 
The financial crisis of 2008 was a little different. It really did seem that the world was heading over some kind of a cliff. But when things got better, it reinforced the strength of pop in the decades-long pop versus rock cycle and actually helped extend that run. Stock markets went on a tear. And even if you didn't personally benefit, that still helped shift the mood. Helping it along was the election of Barack Obama on his platform of hope. And when you have a Democrat in the White House and the economy is humming along, music, which you remember is always downstream from what's happening in society, kept humming a happy tune. There's another element to this. Rock also got happier, or at least less intense, than it was otherwise expected to be. You know, loud big guitars were still there, but so many new acts went in another direction, especially alt-rock. What kind of music was big? Well, acoustic guitars, mandolins, banjos, ukuleles, accordions, played by a new generation of individual singer-songwriters, duos, or small combos. Not a Marshall stack in sight, for example. What Gotche was doing in 2012 was a continuation of what took hold in about 2009 with the arrival of Mumford & Sons. When they appeared, they sounded fresh and different. They had cross-genre appeal. They had cross-generational appeal. And they were extremely successful commercially. They helped usher in a new generation of softer-sounding and poppier alt-rock. Of Monsters and Men, Kaleo, George Ezra, Vance Joy, Hosier, Congos, Walk Off the Earth and Walk the Moon. In many cases, these acts came from the world of indie labels who had distribution deals with the major labels. Here's an example from 2010. One of the biggest singles from Vampire Weekend's Contra album, which was released on the indie label XL, was a song about a non-alcoholic Mexican drink that you might find at a hipster spot. That song offers a nice segue into hipster culture, which has a history that goes back to at least 2000. By 2010, those attitudes and that fashion and those trends had become ingrained everywhere. I quote from a book called Hipstermatic, which was published in 2011. While mainstream society of the 2000s has been busying itself with reality television, dance music, and locating the whereabouts of Britney Spears' underpants— an uprising was quietly and conscientiously taking place behind the scenes. Long-forgotten styles of clothing, beer, cigarettes, and music were becoming popular again. Retro was cool. The environment was precious. And old was the new new. Kids wanted to wear Sylvia Plath's cardigans and Buddy Holly's glasses. They reveled in the irony of making something so nerdy so cool. They wanted to live sustainably and eat organic, gluten-free grains. Above all, they wanted to be recognized for being different, to diverge from the mainstream and carve a cultural niche all for themselves. For this new generation, style wasn't something you could buy in a department store. It became something you found in a thrift shop, or ideally, made yourself. The way to be cool wasn't to look like a television star. It was to look like as though you've never seen television. If that's your lifestyle, which is already contrarian, it's going to extend to your taste in music. By 2013, hipster music was actually a thing. Some of it was older, if not markedly retro. 
And one of the favorites in this subgroup was a Louisiana band called Neutral Milk Hotel, especially their 1998 indie album, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea. If that was your scene, I'm going to bet that you and your like-minded friends could also agree on indie-era Radiohead, LCD Sound System, Bright Eyes, Arcade Fire, Wilco, Tame Impala, Bonnie Vare, Fleet Foxes, and these guys who were so intertwined with hipster culture that they actually became a meme. A band that sold nearly 3 million copies of their debut album, the products of an indie label called Dual Tone. Back with more of our analysis of the sounds and trends of the 2010s in just a sec. Not all of the alt-rock of the 2010s was of the pop variety played on banjos and dulcimers, although for once at a time it certainly felt like it. Older groups, the Foo Fighters, Linkin Park, Black Keys, Chili Peppers, Green Day, Queens of the Stone Age, Royal Blood, Muse, Blink-182, Pearl Jam, they just kept doing what they did best. The 2010s also saw the rise of a new radio format that focused on the harder end of alt-rock. This format, which was born in the U.S. and for the most part remained largely an American thing, although there were half a dozen such stations in Canada and a couple in Australia, involved zero bands playing banjos and dulcimers. Its roots go back to the new metal era of the late 1990s. These are called active rock radio stations, and they play the hard and heavy stuff. A little bit of classic rock, but mostly new stuff. And there are two ways to look at this format. It's considered polarizing and too driven by testosterone. Or it's the format that upholds the traditional rock values of alternative music. Take your pick. While active rock radio stations focused on new material, they also played homage to, you know, Guns N' Roses and ACDC and Led Zeppelin and Van Halen and Ozzy and Sabbath and Def Leppard and Jimi Hendrix. Throw in a few metal bands from the 80s and 2000s and you get the idea. But there was also some crossover with alternative rock stations, Offspring, Foo Fighters, Bush, and so on. Incorporating these artists made the format less of a niche thing. Even though the focus was on men between the ages of 18 and 34, the appeal of these radio stations seeped beyond that. Many active rock radio stations saw ratings growth in the 2010s as people looked for something louder and different, and for some looking for angry music in the era of Donald Trump. This naturally got the attention of record labels, and keeping with our overall theme of this episode, many of them were of the independent variety. They saw active rock outlets as a viable third option to promote new music behind alternative stations and mainstream rock outlets, and this benefited a ton of acts. This included Korn and Slipknot, the two most successful survivors of the new metal era. We can also include Breaking Benjamin, Shinedown, Avenged Sevenfold, Five Finger Death Punch, Disturbed, Tool, System of a Down, and of course, Metallica. One of the most consistently successful bands of the decade, thanks to active rock radio programming, was Canada's Three Days Grace. While they all but disappeared from a lot of alternative stations, they were staples of active rock. And by the end of the decade, they broke Van Halen's 20-year-old record for the most number one singles on the mainstream rock chart with 15 thanks largely to the support they got from those American active rock radio stations. Here's one of those number one songs. One area of rock that saw a decline in the early part of the 2010s was pop punk. 
It never went away. I mean, we still had bands like Green Day and The Offspring and Blink-182 and Panic! at the Disco. But overall, the popularity of pop punk was less than we saw in the early 2000s. Let me give you some examples. Some 41, Simple Plan, and Newfound Glory were nowhere as big as they had once been. Well, why? Well, maybe a couple of reasons. First of all, pop radio stations, the kind that would have incorporated pop punk as part of their playlists, squeezed this music out in favor of more dance-oriented tunes. Second, magazines that championed this subgenre either shrank, think alternative press, or disappeared entirely, like AMP. Third, emo, which had been a driving force of punk pop a decade earlier, had largely gone out of fashion. The fact that My Chemical Romance broke up in 2013 did not help, or that the Warp Tour disappeared, or that Blink-182, one of the biggest of all the pop-punk bands, if not the biggest, had started to really sputter. Fourth, the big pop-punk bands from the early 90s and the aughts had grown up. Now, it's really hard to maintain that essential youthful angst when you're approaching 50. Same thing if you were a fan of the music. At some point, you got to leave your teenage angst behind. All these things conspired to create a downward spiral. Pop punk bands no longer headlined festivals like Coachella or Lollapalooza. Venues that were once known for booking these bands either closed or moved to booking different acts. And the pop side of alt rock was dominated by folky acoustic guitars and banjo bands, which seemed to be taking up all the oxygen. Now, as usual, there were exceptions, but not a whole lot. We might point to Paramore, but a better example is probably Fallout Boy, who actually returned from a hiatus in 2013 with an album that they called Save Rock and Roll. Let's now swing over to Europe and see how rock fared over there in the 2010s. Starting with the UK, where alt-rock did actually pretty well, at least as far as chart performance was concerned. Once again, acts from indie labels did great. Arctic Monkeys, Mumford & Sons, Foles, Alt-J, Tudor Cinema Club. Meanwhile, the Monsters did well, and that would include Coldplay and Muse and Gorillaz. In 2014, Royal Blood became the first rock band formed within the last decade to win a Brit Award for Best British Group. Pretty good. Heavy Metal and Hard Rock, again, groups drawn largely from indie labels, saw an increased presence on the charts. And this was a nice change from a long stretch where American metal and hard rock bands pretty much had the British market to themselves, with a couple of bands like Accept and Scorpions thrown in. Of all the scenes in Britain during this decade, folk probably saw the largest growth. I mean, think about it. What started with Mumford & Sons in the aughts expanded to Laura Marling, Jake Buck, Ben Howard, and of course, Ed Sheeran, who would end up as one of the most successful solo performers in the world by the end of the decade. Then there was Lord, originally a teenaged indie musician of New Zealand who began dropping songs on SoundCloud in 2012. She released an EP called The Love Club for free because she knew that fans, most of them as young as her, didn't have access to her credit card so they couldn't get streaming music services. And when this song took off, she was signed up by Universal. And over 2013, it became a worldwide monster and an anthem for millennials everywhere. And she was just 17. Of all the new artists to come out of the Southern Hemisphere, Lord was the biggest. 
While she ended up moving across several genres and formats, thanks to some very intensive promotional marketing by her label, which also included multiple remixes and multiple promotional campaigns, her career began as an alternative artist. The strategy worked brilliantly. The single sold 10 million units. Her debut album, Pure Heroin, was a top 10 in nearly a dozen countries and sold somewhere around 6 million copies. Absolutely astounding numbers in the era of streaming. When we come back, we're going to switch things up a bit. We'll segue from the entry of youth and new blood of the decade to the heroes that left us. For the last segment of this episode of our look back on the 2010s, things are going to get grim because we have to talk about something that's only going to get worse in the 2020s. And that is the inevitability of the death of our music heroes. The death of a rock star has always affected us, but in the mid-2010s, there started to be a lot more of them. In retrospect for me, this grim realization began on December the 3rd, 2015, when Scott Weiland was found dead on his tour bus in the parking lot of a hotel not far from Minneapolis. Weiland was always dancing on the edge of something fatal with his drug and drinking habits and the spurts of self-destructive behavior. But then came 2016. The year had barely started when we heard about Bowie. It was with his death on January 10th, 2016, that the hard truth about our aging heroes really began to set in. Bowie was supposed to be different, eternal, immortal. The world of rock without Bowie? Unthinkable. But the liver cancer he'd been battling quietly and out of sight finally took him. He laid down for a nap on a Sunday afternoon and never got up. Bowie released two albums in the 2010s. The first was The Next Day in 2013, which hit number one on the charts, making it his most successful album in 30 years. And the second one, the second one was hard to take because it was released on January 8th, 2016, about 48 hours before he died. Black Star was recorded in New York in complete secrecy. No one except a handful of people knew anything about it. A couple of singles had been released earlier. One was called Lazarus, which upon close inspection showed that Bowie knew that the end was near. Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. I've got drama. David Bowie and Lazarus from his final album, Black Star, released as a parting gift just hours, hours before he died. And from that point on, the deaths just seemed to snowball for the rest of 2016. In fact, CNN called 2016 the year the music died, and I swear created a whole new category on Wikipedia. This is just a partial list because, frankly, we don't have time to go through everyone who died in 2016. January 18th, Glenn Fry of the Eagles, complications from intestinal surgery. January 29th, two members of the Jefferson Airplane, Paul Kantner, multiple organ failure, and Siggy Anderson, COPD. February 18th, Paul Gordon of the B-52s, heart failure. March 8th, Beatles producer George Martin. He was 90 years old. March 10, Keith Emerson, keyboardist for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Suicide. Well, here's a big one. April 21st, Prince, a fentanyl overdose. May 19th, John Barry, an early member of the Beastie Boys. Dementia. May 21st, Nick Menza of Megadeth, heart failure. July 16th, Alan Vega of Suicide, the groundbreaking New York band from the early 1970s. July 26th, Sandy Perlman, producer of everyone from Blue Oyster Cult to The Clash, a stroke. 
August 17th, James Woolley, a one-time member of Nine Inch Nails, complications from spinal surgery. September 9th, Prince Buster, a great ska pioneer, a stroke. October 18th, Pete Burns of Dead or Alive, cardiac arrest. November 7th, Leonard Cohen, cancer. November 22nd, Craig Gill of Inspiral Carpets, suicide. December 7th, Greg Lake, another member of Emerson Lake and Palmer, cancer. December 24th, Rick Parfit of Status Quo, blood poisoning. And December 25th, George Michael, heart failure. The bad news continued in 2017, although I think 2016 kind of prepared us for the shocks to come. Butch Trucks of the Allman Brothers, John Wetton of Roxy Music in Asia, Steve Lang of April Wine, Chuck Berry, Jay Giles of the Jay Giles Band, Saxa, the saxophone player with English Beat, Walter Becker of Steely Dan. Tom Petty left us that October, and that was followed two weeks later by the departure of Gord Downey. We knew that one was coming, but when he died, it was still a shock. In November 2017, Malcolm Young of ACDC, then David Cassidy of the Partridge Family, followed by Pat Denisio of the Smithereens. The wave continued in 2018. Fast Eddie Clark of Motorhead, Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries, Mark E. Smith of The Fall, Vinnie Paul of Pantera, Aretha Franklin, Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks. And then the decade finished with the loss of Rick Ocasek of The Cars, Ginger Baker of Cream, Eddie Money, Keith Flint of The Prodigy, Ranking Roger of both the English Beat and General Public, Marie Fredrickson, singer with Roxette, cult favorite Daniel Johnson, and Mark Hollis of Talk Talk. Again, those are just the final four years of the decade, and that's a very, very abbreviated list. Most of the names I mentioned died from some kind of medical issue or old age, but there were also many suicides, and perhaps two of the most shocking came within two months of each other in 2017. Chris Cornell on May 17th in a hotel room in Detroit, and then two months later, on what would have been Chris's 53rd birthday, his good friend Chester Bennington at his home in Los Angeles. Here he is with Lincoln Park in 2007. Here is the brutal truth about our musical heroes. A lot of them are in their 70s and even 80s. Many of them lived hard lives filled with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They spent a lot of time on the road. Late nights, no sleep, bad food, too much alcohol. The actuarial tables say that they're approaching the end of their life expectancies. It's an awful thing to say, but when I get around to doing a review of the 2020s, the in-memoriam list is going to contain a lot of big, big names. On part three of this review of rock in the 2010s, we're going to continue to examine the fragmentation and segmentation of rock that began as soon as rock was born in the 1950s. In the 2010s, we saw an explosion of new genres and subgenres and sub-subgenres and even sub-sub-sub-sub-subgenres, all aided by new ideas, creative cross-pollination, and new technology. We'll even try to put a number on the number of music genres that exist in the universe today. And let me tell you something, it is a very large number. If you missed part one of this series, it's available as a podcast wherever you go to download podcasts. And when the series wraps up, every episode will be there for the taking. There are also hundreds of other ongoing history episodes waiting for you as well. Take as many as you'd like. As always, you're invited to visit my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every single day. And you should sign up for the free newsletter, which offers a summary of the day's coolest and most interesting music stories. It comes up, like I said, every day. I'm also lurking around Twitter, Facebook, threads, and even TikTok. And if you have any comments or questions, send them to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. 
We'll see you next time for part three of the history of rock in the 2010s. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 